And now let us bring our Bibles together and get ready for the Word of God. Uh, let's turn to our passage, Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. That's Jonah chapter 1, verse 4 to 10. This is the word of God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? Where is your country, and what of, all, what, of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Good morning, Renewal. It is a joy, again, to be worshiping with you this morning. My name is Luke Wu, one of the pastors here as well. Just to highlight, again, uh, our communion service this Saturday at 4 p.m. at Proclamation, uh, we invite all of you to come. I want to give a quick word uh, on communion. Now, we here at Renewal, uh, we believe uh, that communion, the Lord's Supper, we partake of the bread and the juice, uh, it's not a necessary requirement to be Christian. Uh, it's not something that is uh, foundational where if you don't have it, you don't have a relationship with God. And so our theology, our understanding allows us to continue to grow in grace uh, even though we haven't been able to meet. But at the same time, uh, we don't want to undermine the importance of sacrament either. Uh, we believe that it is a spiritual nourishment, as the Westminster Confession tells us, that in that act of taking the bread and the wine, that we are spiritually nourished, that there is an actual means of grace being conveyed. Uh, it reminds me of stories when missionaries first preached the gospel to many of these smaller people groups, that they would walk literally miles and miles so that they could partake communion together. Well, for us, uh, it's just 25 minutes down the road for many of you at Proclamation. We'll join outside. Uh, please know that we are going to take safety precautions. Uh, we're going to have individually packaged communion cups as well, so we'll make sure that we are safe. And also, as we pray over God's Word this morning, um, I would like for you to join me as we continue to pray, uh, especially for our nation. If you've been with us, we've been praying over what it seems like a chain reaction uh, of many events this year starting with the pandemic, natural disasters, and especially the, the continual heartache uh, that our African-American brothers and sisters have been experiencing. And so let's especially pray for them, especially for those who feel angered, uh, for those who feel hopeless, 
thinking about those who are struggling, if their own lives are safe, and frankly, if they can even be safe in their own home. So let's pray for them. Let's pray for Brianna Taylor's family, that they will be comforted, uh, that they would look to God for peace. And let's also pray for the safety of those protesting, as well as the safety of law officials, that there wouldn't be this dichotomizing of me versus them, but a unity in our nation that wants peace, that wants justice and mercy as well. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we take this time, but also, Lord, we want to take the rest of this week, the rest of these months in our lives to pray for our nation. We pray especially for Louisville. We pray for that town and that city. We pray that the people there will be able to find you in the midst of so many questions. God, we know, Lord, that you can use so many different ways to bring about your presence. So God, we pray that you would do that now through the government, through relationship, through people's hearts. And we pray for those especially struggling with trauma as they see some of these things happening on the news, that it triggers perhaps some of their own experiences. We pray that you'll provide a way of comfort and love and peace through the love and power of the gospel and of Christ. We also pray, Lord, for our nation. We continually pray for those affected by this virus. We pray for safety. We pray, Lord, that the numbers of those affected, the number of deaths will reduce and that it will be zero. We pray that you will be with the health care workers, that you will continue to help them persevere, to know that their work will not be in vain. We pray for their strength. We pray for those recovering still, recovering from the wildfires out west. Uh, we pray that they will, you will be with them. Give them comfort to know that their inheritance, that their security is in you, if they trust in you, if they believe in who you are. So we pray for that as well. God, we also want to pray for our church. We want to pray that we may continue to grow in your word, in your grace, even though we are not together physically. Uh, we think of people like our brother Joey Hun. Continue to be with him. Give him words of encouragement day by day to keep fighting this battle and that he's not alone. So may we continue to pray with him as well. And finally, we pray over today's message. As we listen to your word, may we not bring our own agendas and stand over it, but may we be open and stand under it to allow your word to speak truth into our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've been preaching out of the book of Jonah, which isn't too long of a book, only four chapters, 48 verses, but we're taking our time studying these verses uh, bit by bit, because there's much more to Jonah than just the miracle of the great fish. We can learn a lot from him. And especially in these earlier chapters, we can learn a lot about ourselves through Jonah. Especially when it comes to our understanding uh, regarding our relationship with God and our relationship with the world. And today we're going to look at something that affects those two very things. In fact, this impacts all of us. In the way we view God, the way that we view the world. And this thing, it's, it's our identity. The way we view and understand ourselves. And I love the way that I once heard it when we were asked the question of identity. He said this, the question of identity may seem like it's who are you? But for the Christian, the real question is whose are you? Because for the Christian, those two are intertwined. I think of that movie, Lion King, if you remember Simba, after running away, 
he sees Mufasa in the clouds, and Mufasa says, what? Simba, you've forgotten me. And Simba denies it, and he says, no, I've never forgotten you, Dad. And his dad says, you've forgotten who you are because you've forgotten me. And that gets at what we want to talk about today, because in a st statement like that, for Simba, it shows that his relationship with his father is intertwined with how he views himself. And we're going to see that for our lives as well. Our relationship with God is intertwined with how we view ourselves, our identity. We're going to do that by observing three things in our passage this morning. First, we're going to see how Jonah's world collapses around him. Then after it comes crashing down, we're going to see what's underneath all the rubble. And finally, we're going to see what is being rebuilt. We're going to see Jonah's world collapsing. We're going to see what's underneath all that rubble. And then we're going to see what's being rebuilt. So let's go down uh, these three first. Well, if we could summarize what's happening to Jonah in this first half of this book, we could say that his world is indeed collapsing. Even a cursory knowledge of Jonah shows that he was running away from God's call. He sails through a life-threatening storm. He gets swallowed by a great fish, gets hurled out of that fish onto land. And with that today in our passage, we're going to look a little closer to see what's going on with Jonah as his world collapses. But more importantly, we're going to think about why his world collapses. Now again, we don't have much biographical information on Jonah apart from what we see in these four chapters. All we have so far is verse 1 that says Jonah was the son of Amittai. But we can see that based on his reluctance to preach the gospel to the Ninevites, we know that so far in his life, he had built his understanding of the world around him based on his ethnic identity. In fact, his ethnic superiority. We see that in his actions, in rejecting God's call to preach the gospel to the pagan Ninevites, and also that, that he complains to God, saying, God, I knew you would be gracious to the Ninevites if I went to them, which is why he fled. And that tells us that we have reason to believe that Jonah's ethnic pride was his world, and it wasn't a recent thing. I mean, first of all, this kind of nationalistic worldview, it doesn't develop overnight can't easily be changed. And I can speak from experience being born in South Korea. I still root for them uh, during the World Cup, no matter how bad they are. But also having grown up around Philly, no matter where I go, I can't root for any other team than the Eagles, no matter how bad they are. Even if I spend the rest of my life in another country, can't be easily changed. Jonah too. He didn't develop his ethnic superior worldview overnight. In fact, it was a world that he had built for many years, likely all his life. In fact, that one biographical information we have outside of the book of Jonah is in 2 Kings chapter 14, where we read that Jonah was instrumental in greatly extending the national boundaries of Israel and also establishing its security against other nations. That's revealing because, first, let's step back into how people understood boundaries back then. And as one scholar puts it, boundaries are concerned with identity. It's not just geographic. Boundaries can be doctrinal, moral, social, political, and for Jonah, it can be ethnic. 
because boundaries they they demarcate who belongs to who. What are the things that require are required for you to belong to a certain group? And boundaries gives you a tangible way for you to know I belong with this group of people, not them over there. And boundaries that's what Jonah's life was all about. That was his identity. That was his world. He saw everything within the lens of his ethnic superiority over other nations. So in 2 Kings, when God commands Jonah to, to go to the Israelites, to your own people, and say, God tells you to go extend your boundaries as far as to the Sea of Arabah, Jonah was all for it. He jumped at that task because according to his world, his lens, his identity, God's command to obey fit perfectly. But now, when Jonah receives God's command in our passage, it's the same God. It's the same God, uh, same God and the same command to prophesy, the same command to obey. It goes against every aspect of his soul, doesn't it? It goes against every aspect of his identity because in his worldview, he believes that Israel is far superior than the evil Assyrians. Israel is the chosen nation. Only Israel can have a relationship with the living God. So when we read in verse 1 of this book, where it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. That's significant, because that one verse destroys Jonah's entire world. His lifelong identity comes crumbling down. And all it takes is one verse for Jonah's world to collapse, and for all of us, brothers and sisters, there is one verse out there that we're deeply afraid of. It's different for everyone. But it's a verse that you probably never want to hear. A verse that you'll do whatever it takes to never hear. A verse that makes you work and invest all of your life to never hear. It may be the words of your boss who says, you're being laid off. And your whole entire world of, of being responsible achieving security for you and your family, your world of how you want your life to be comes crumbling down with that one statement. Or finding out that the people that you've invested so much into, they betray you. They don't appreciate you. Goes against everything you worked for in their lives. That can be that one verse that crumbles your world. It can even be a, a cold comment on Instagram that says, challenges or critiques the way you look. And that one statement can, can bother you so much because you think, are other people thinking the same thing? And that can destroy your world. What do you pride yourself in? What do you take comfort in? What are you deeply afraid of? And what is it that can drive you to go from one end of the world to the other, just like Jonah? Why? So that you can protect your identity, the identity that you built for yourself. Verse 1 comes to Jonah, and he flees to Tarshish. And for people back then, it was literally the other end of the world from Nineveh. It was modern-day western Spain, the end of the Mediterranean Sea, as far west as anyone had sailed. Jonah, to do that, he had to forsake his entire life. He bought a one-way ticket. He sold everything at home. Why? To protect his built identity. He'll do whatever it takes 
And friends, we'll do just as much, even more, to protect ours too. Because our identity is revealed. If we ever thought to ourselves, you know what? There's nothing I won't do for my job or for my company, for my career. There's nothing I won't do for my kids, for my reputation, for my parents. But brothers and sisters, there will be a day if it hasn't already come when that one verse comes into your life and your entire world that you built comes crumbling down. And unless your identity is not in anything you built for yourself, not anything social or political or what other family or other people think about you, unless it's in God, unless your identity is one that says, there's nothing I won't do for my God, there will be storms. Because when that storm comes, it will reveal what your world is made of. There are two people I want you to consider. Both of them, that one verse came into their lives. First is a man named George Ladd. He was a well-known, renowned biblical scholar at Fuller Seminary in California, and he wrote this great theological book. And he wrote it in part to make Christian scholarship respectable in the secular world, the secular scholarly world. He said that he wanted to raise the academic rigor of Christian scholarship in the eyes of, of prestigious institutions around the world. And his colleagues said that he was so disciplined, even obsessed in this endeavor. There were holes in his office where he would throw his books against the wall in frustration as he's writing this book. And what's more astonishing is that he'd never fixed those holes because he said, looking at those holes drove me to work harder to write this masterpiece. And so when he finally published his magnum opus, and as a whole, it was well received. But then there comes this one scholar from the University of Chicago, one of the finest theological institutions in the world. He writes a review of George Ladd's work in this secular journal. And there, he severely criticizes it. And George Ladd, after reading it, his friends they give testimony how George fell into major depression. He shut people out. He kept calling himself an academic failure, a scholarly wipeout. And even though there are other positive reviews out there, they said that it had absolutely no effect on him. He himself said, my major life work is a complete failure. And as a result, this theologian, this seminary professor, he fell into depression, alcohol abuse, he never recovered. Even his whole family fell apart. Now, I don't want this one aspect of his career to dominate your view of him, because he did serve the larger church greatly with many of his writings, many of which I benefit from. But compare him with someone like Elizabeth Elliot, whom you know as the missionary and also the wife of Jim Elliot. Now, Elizabeth, she was an expert in languages. And once, she was working with the Colorado Indians, and they did not have a written language. So she labored, learning an unwritten language, creating for them an alphabet, documenting every linguistic pattern. It, it is tedious work. And this was before the era of computers. This was before a dictionary was even available for her. And one day, her verse one came. 
When she was finished and ready to publish her work, she packed all her notebooks, charts, documents in this one suitcase to hand over to find out later that the suitcase was stolen. The entirety of her work gone. Now, Elizabeth Elliot, she was frustrated. How could she not be? She says this, Now I was dumbfounded to realize all that work was down the drain. I was furious at whoever stole that suitcase. But she also writes this, This grief, this sorrow, this total loss that empties my hands and, and breaks my heart, I will accept. And by accepting it, I find in my hands something to offer to God. And if I give it back to him, he will in mysterious exchange give himself to me. In contrast to Elizabeth, for George Ladd, for Jonah, they built their world, their identity apart from God. And in fact, God sends a storm into their lives to reveal it. We see that in verse 1, where God commands Jonah to preach the gospel to the Ninevites. And we see it wasn't just for the sake of the Ninevites, it was for Jonah's sake. It served to destroy his identity that he built apart from God, his idol of ethnic superiority. And we're going to see that it ultimately saved his life. Next point. Let's see now what's underneath the rubble after his world comes crashing down. We see that Jonah, he's utterly depressed. Verse 5 tells us that Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, that he had laid down and he was fast asleep. And I draw attention to this word, to this phrase, fast asleep. Because in the Hebrew, it signifies something more than just an afternoon nap. And it carries the sense of this deep, hypnotic sleep. It's the same Hebrew word used for Adam in Genesis when he was asleep and God took and made Eve out of his ribs. One commentator puts it, he was just out cold. And that such kind of sleep, it often at times occurs when one is depressed. Jonah's escaping. That's what he's doing. Physically, he's trying to get as far away from God and his commands by going to Tarshish. And also mentally now, he's escaping by turning to depressed sleep. And if you ever struggled with depression, sleep is great. It's a place where you don't have to deal with the anxieties, the disappointments and burdens and pressures of life, isn't it? And we're gonna see later in this chapter that Jonah, in fact, he takes it further. When he reveals eventually to the sailors that God has sent the storm because of his disobedience, the sailors ask Jonah, so what do you want us to do now? What should we do so that the seas may quiet down for us? And even at this point, Jonah, he doesn't run back to God. He doesn't say, you know, turn this ship around. Let's go to Nineveh. You know what he says? He says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. He calls for his own death sentence. Now, partly, you can see it as Jonah being altruistic to save the lives of the sailors. But there's also a strong case to be made that Jonah, he's, at such a low point of his life, so far away from God, so depressed that he would rather end his life than to obey God's call to bring the gospel to the pagan Gentiles. Not even to the Ninevites, 
but even to the pagan soldiers who are right in front of him, who are practically begging Jonah to preach the gospel to them. We also see later in chapter 4, he even says it with his own words. Far is it, for it is better for me to die than to live and preach the gospel to the Ninevites. I hope you can see how far down Jonah had gone. Physically, by fleeing to Tarshish, by being in the deep recesses of the ship. How far down he had gone emotionally by trying to be uninvolved with the sailors by sleeping. And also how low he is spiritually, even to the point of death. In fact, the only one place further down he could go is to be literally swallowed by a great fish, which we'll read about in a couple of weeks. But now here's the crucial point. As low as Jonah can go, considering the severity of his uh, disobedience, even to this point, considering now how far he feels from God, considering how much he hates the Gentiles, how indifferent he is to the sailors, how much he hates even his own life, the lowest point of his life, even at his very worst, Jonah is still God's beloved child. And God is still and has always been and always will be his God. You see, in the midst of all the terrors of this storm, the sailors, they ask Jonah, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And Jonah, in the midst of all his darkness, in the midst of all the rubble, in the midst of his idolatrous ethnic superiority, his identity is still, he responds, I belong to God. That is amazing. You see, the sailors, they weren't just interrogating Jonah with random questions. These questions together, they, they ask the core of one's identity. They're finding out who you actually are. Because back then, and even now, your occupation was a way of finding out one's identity, where you came from, your country, of what people are you. These are all identity questions. In essence, these sailors are asking Jonah, who are you? And Jonah, even at his worst, at the lowest point of his life, says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's amazing because that statement right there sounds nothing like the rebellious Jonah that we know. In fact, if I read to you this verse 9, this one statement, without the context of what we read so far, if I just told you, somebody comes up and says to you, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, the one who made the sea and the dry land, you would think that person is a very spiritual and holy person, no? That person is a child of God. To fear God doesn't mean this slavish fear, but a holy fear. It means to worship. It sounds very spiritual and very Christian-like, doesn't it? But what's amazing is that verse 9, that confession of who he is and whose he is, comes right in the middle of Jonah when he is at his worst. A seminary professor of mine once asked this question. Do you believe that you placed yourself within God's hand? He was basically asking, do you think you had anything to do with your salvation? That you played a part in obtaining perfect righteousness and eternal life by being called a child of God? And of course the answer is no. 
only in Christ alone, not by anything from me or of me, contributed to God's hold on my life. Then he asked this, if you had no ability to place yourself within the grasp of God's mighty hand, what makes you think you have the ability to get yourself out of it? He was teaching us that it's not our hold on God, but his hold on us that assures us that there's no good that you can do to earn his claim on you, and also there's no bad you can do to lose his claim on you either. There's no amount of good prophesying, no amount of obedience that Jonah could do to secure his identity in God. That's amazing grace. But I'm blown away at this. Even more amazing grace that there's no amount of depression, escapism, disobedience that Jonah can do to lose God's grasp on his life either. Friends, do you see what the book of Jonah is teaching us? It's showing us that your disobedience, your recklessness, your lack of love for others, your lack of love for God, the worst of your sins can't stand a chance to the unfathomable riches of God's grace. God's grace that says, I'm not letting you go. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there, O Lord. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle by the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Psalm 139. That's underneath Jonah's rubble. Let's finally see now what God rebuilds. If you've been following the metaphors, we first saw how Jonah's world collapsed all around him. He was at his worst. And then we saw underneath all that rubble, we find his identity in God unchanged, secure, firmly grounded in God's commitment to him. So then what comes next? Well, after a house is torn down, it's rebuilt, isn't it? This is our final point. And what God rebuilds is an identity that is based upon his grace and his grace only. Earlier we saw when Jonah was at his worst, God clings on to him, but at the same time, God's love and his hold on him is not based on Jonah when he's at his best either, or anyone's best. And we can see this when we look, especially at the sailors in contrast to Jonah. Now if we do a quick scan of how the sailors handle this storm, we're gonna be spiritually impressed you know, when the mighty tempest comes upon them, the sailors, they were afraid, as they should be. And immediately, each one of them cries out to their God. They, they pray. They have a prayer meeting. They also acted. They hurled the cargo ship out of the ship into the sea. They even encouraged sleepy, indifferent people to, to become spiritually awake. Remember, the captain goes down to the inner parts of the ship, and he wakes Jonah up, and he rebukes him, saying, What are you doing? You sleeper, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will have mercy on us. And when they ask who Jonah is, that's when they first hear about the God of the Bible, the God of heaven, the one who made the sea and the land, Yahweh. And how do they respond? 
again, spiritually, the right thing. They become exceedingly afraid, recognizing God's power and Jonah's foolishness in running away from God. Now, Pastor Bill will speak on this next time, but even when Jonah tells them to hurl him into the sea, the sailors refuse at first because they don't want to anger this God. So spiritually, they're doing a lot of good things. They're responding a lot better than Jonah, more righteous than Jonah. Not is he? Are they not? Their prayers, their actions, their responses, their proselytizing even to Jonah, whereas for Jonah, his faith was a private matter. And not for the sailors. Now here's the point. And yet, the sailors, they are not one inch closer to having a relationship with God. Their righteousness earns them nothing. And what's more astonishing is that their righteousness, even in comparison to Jonah's unrighteousness and his downright rebellion, still earns them nothing. But it's only when they hear who God is from Jonah's mouth. The God of the sea and the land, the God of heaven, only when they encounter who God is, when God calms the sea, that their fear of the storm changes to a godly, worshipful fear of the Lord. In other words, their relationship depends on God's grace towards them, nothing else. So what's God showing Jonah? What's he showing us? What kind of identity now is God building for Jonah? One that says, Jonah, you at your worst can't loosen my grip for you, and the sailors at their best can't tighten my grip for them either. He's building a world for Jonah where in that world, even pagan sailors become saved in spite of Jonah's disobedience. You see, Jonah, he never initiated the spiritual conversation with the sailors. He was the most disinterested person in God's plan to save these pagan sailors. And yet God saved the sailors. And yet God saves the sailors through a disobedient Jonah. Do you see the kind of God Jonah's God is? Do you see the kind of worldview God is building for Jonah and for you and I that, that when storms come and our world comes crumbling down, that he wants to realize that all that we have, God's love, is all that we need and God recreates our world. A world where the operating force is His grace, one that works apart from one's own righteousness. A grace that works in spite of one's unrighteousness. That's the kind of God we have, brothers and sisters. One who can save pagan sailors through a rebellious, disinterested prophet. Imagine what He can do with you. Do you see the greatness of God? I love this verse in Isaiah that gets at the, at the heart of it. God raises this question. Even if no man answers my call, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or that I have no power to deliver? That's the kind of God we have. And that's the kind of God who commits himself to you. So committed that for Jonah, he's willing to send something as big as a tempest, a storm, something as big as a giant fish, or even later in the book, something small as even a plant and even one worm to rebuild a right view of God and a right view of himself. No matter how long it takes, no matter what it takes, God was willing to do that. And we see that in Jesus Christ. 
And friends, we have something far greater than what Jonah has. We have the guarantee of Jesus who died for your sins and for your rebellion against God. And we have the assurance of his resurrection that gives proof that we too, we can claim his righteousness for ourselves. That's why Jesus calls himself the greater Jonah in the Gospels. Why? Because he's the greater Jonah because though Jonah was an example of how God can use him in spite of his disobedience. God uses Jesus through his perfect obedience. Jonah was hurled into the water, into the ocean, so that God could save Jonah. Jesus was hurled into the waters of death so that God could save the world. And because it was worth it for Jesus to lay down his life for your sake, it is worth it for God to send storms into your life to send versus ones to tear down your false identities. It is worth it for God for him to strip away all that you have to even allow you to be at your worst so that you can see underneath all the rubble that your identity in Christ never changes. And it's worth it for God to rebuild your identity based upon his love and grace. The same love and grace that held Christ upon that cross. It's radical grace. But it's not random grace. It's not a random, isolated act of love that has no origin or justification to it. It's radical grace because it comes at the cost of Jesus. It's free for us, yes, but it comes at a cost. The cost of his own life so that you can have an identity based on his commitment to you. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, what kind of storm is God sending into your life? What kind of false identity is he tearing down? What kind of world is break God breaking apart for you so that you finally see the futility of man-made ones? If you're in a storm right now, do you see what's underneath all that rubble? Even with all the chaos that 2020 has to offer, the brokenness, the frustrations, the sadness, the anger, underneath it all, do you see God's claim on you. And let me ask you, are you willing to allow God to build you a new identity, one that's built on his grace and commitment to you? Because if you allow him, imagine what God has in store for you. Imagine if he can use an unwilling prophet like Jonah. Imagine what he can do with sinners saved by Christ like you and I. Let me end our time with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in, and he rebuilds that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing because he's getting the drains right. He's fixing the leaks in the roof and so on. And you know that these jobs are needed, so you're not surprised. But then, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. It doesn't make sense to you. What on earth is he up to? He's breaking portions of the wall down. He's doing so much more than you expect. And the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on a new extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards, and you thought that God was making a little cottage. But he's building a palace, and he intends to come 
and live in it himself with you. Friends, our world might be collapsing right before our eyes, but the Lord is building a new kingdom where in that palace invites you and intends to come live in it with you based on its grasp on your life. Let us pray. Let's take a few seconds and respond to God's word by in our hearts praying to him and asking God to reveal any false identities you've created for yourself. Asking yourself, what am I mostly afraid of? What is my verse one? What am I building my life upon apart from God? And let's repent together. Join me in prayer. And next, let's just pray this one simple confession to God, saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done in my life. Even if your heart is not there, let's let that confession guide our hearts to say, Lord, I want to be there, where I allow you to rebuild my world based upon you. Let's pray that as we end our time. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for being a God who loves us so much that you don't want to leave us the way we are, that you're so committed to us, that you're willing to send whatever it takes for us to build our lives upon you. Help us to welcome you, to allow you to do surgery in our hearts so that we cannot ever be down and be at our worst, but in Christ to be at our best. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us worship together.